Welcome to Fishing Lines, from novice to expert, from river to sea. You're in the right place for the biggest stars and the best information on the UK fishing scene. So, Steve, thank you very much for joining us. How are you, sir? Yeah, good, Neil. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to chat to you. Yeah, you're very welcome. So, um, this came out of uh, me doing a podcast a few weeks ago, and we were talking about bluefin tuna and them coming back to our shores and uh you reached out to me and said look there's some interesting stuff happening let's let's have a chat and we had a phone call and I, i'm just i'm fascinated the subject absolutely fascinates me as a traveling angler who's had to go worldwide in search of big game fishing to have these fish coming to our shores and it's a childhood thing as well so being a northern boy and taking holidays in whitby and scarborough and seeing pictures of you know, black and white, old-timey fishermen with these huge tuners and just prehistoric tackle. And thinking, how the hell did, did they get that in? It's it's always fascinating me. And I've always wondered, did we overfish them? Did Why are they not here anymore? I wonder if they'll ever come back. And then we chatted and you just filled in a lot of those blanks. And I really thought that would be an interesting topic for us to get into. And just more anglers need to know about the work that you're doing. I need to know the story of it and, and sort of it's just fascinating so um welcome along really thank you for making the time um let, let's get into the organization let's talk about what it is and, and what the aims are sure yeah so um so these these fish appeared in numbers i mean they've been odd fish really from sort of 2012 2013 again but really it was 2016, where in the southwest the, uh, they just sort of arrived and sort of parked themselves there, <clears throat> and I um I got to see that and you know get involved in it in the first year, and it was a uh, okay, wow, this is incredible. Like you said, I've spent uh, you know my life trying to see big fish, at, you know, a lot of expense, a lot of time on aircraft, a lot of blank days, a lot of trolling around the oceans, <laughs> and to have them here, you know, to smell the oil, you know, and as you left Falmouth and to see the oil slicks, fantastic. And then I thought, oh, well, maybe it's a one-off. Yeah, you know, it's great, you know. But it, and then the fish came back again um, in seventeen, and I uh, thought, well, I started doing some research, and you know, the numbers are picking up, and the story was like not at all what I thought it would be. You hear about endangered bluefin and stuff, and I um, thought, well, this is potentially something we should look at. You know, why, why are we not able to look at a recreational fishery in the UK? So we did some digging, and it's like, okay, well, there's a whole series of things we would have to do to sort of prove our case and to put a fishery, you know, live release fishery in place. I looked around and no one, I thought, must show you the Angling Trust or some of the associations, the clubs are doing it, and no one was. Um, and I just sort of semi-retired about three months, well, in, in mid-2016, so I had the time. So I, um, I started putting stuff together. I went to see the, I spoke to a lot of skippers that I knew, um, colleagues, friends of mine in the Sport Fishing Club of the British Isles that I belong to. I'm a conservation officer for that club. And um, we said, yeah, we should try and do something about this. So I pitched it to the Angling Trust because, but what I did need, which I didn't have, was sort of the ability to um, to open those doors to the people that make the decisions. I've never been involved in any kind of campaigning around a, uh, you know, a fishery issue before. So um, I thought if anybody's going to have any expertise, it'll be the Angling Trust. So I went to them, I pitched them over a couple of meetings and they said, yeah, we love it, we'll get on board. And they've certainly opened a lot of doors for me. So Bluefin Tuna UK is basically me and uh, a couple of guys we work with from the um, uh, from the Sport Fishing Club of British Isles. Um, and we now we have the support of the Angling Trust. 
uh, we have something like 60 individual skippers we work, we work with, um, as well as the Professional Boatmen's Association, uh, several clubs, including the Shark Angling Club of Great Britain, the Angling Trades Association, a whole bunch of individuals. We've got some scientists to support us. So it's become sort of quite an, an open church, you know, broad church, if you like, with people from different backgrounds. And the aim is really to establish, on the initial aim and the end aim still is, to establish a, um, a recreational uh, catch and release bluefin tuna fishery in the UK. Um, and there's a whole series of things we have to, processes we have to go through to do that. You can't do it overnight, um, but that's the objective. And then more recently, uh, as the possibility has come up for um, in, in the near future, for us to do some more limited research-based fishing programs like the Irish and the Danes have been running for a couple of years. We've been lobbying and campaigning for uh, call a chart fishery, catch and release tagging fishery for the UK, which would sort of be a bridge, if you like, between where we've been and where we want to end up yeah. into a proper fully-fledged uh, fishery. So that's it. Yes, I've got no commercial interest. I'm not a chart skipper. I've got no financial interest in this thing. I'm just super passionate about you know big fish like bluefin and the fact that they're i still can't quite believe it it's five six years on that you know they're here <laughs> and, um, <laughs> incredible <laughs> yeah but it's good because you know the world needs people like you it's it's easy to uh, sit in your armchair and call other people's efforts and say well what's he getting out of it what's he up to and uh, you get a lot of green-eyed people wondering about your motivations is there some you know what's how's someone making money out of this and and actually when you're just trying to do a good thing for your fellow angler to allow really anybody in the UK to get a sample of big game fishing for a reasonable amount of money I mean it's it's a laudable thing to do I mean I understand the yeah the cynicism I do get that I mean it doesn't mean it's not frustrating when sort of you know, two, three years after we launched a campaign, everything we've tried to do has been, you know, very much geared towards opening this up, you know, whether yeah. it's getting recreational sea anglers able to fish in the Tunnels project or the original pro proposal, which included, you know, private recreational boats being able to be involved in a fishery, whether it was pushing to get successfully getting whales in Scottish waters included. So, you know, other skippers, other anglers could hopefully get involved. Everything we've tried to do is, you know, is to try and socialise the fishery. Um, yeah, it does get, it's frustrating. I mean, there are days, like in the last couple of days, where you feel, you know, you have more frustration and opposition with some elements of, um, of the fishing world than you do with the antics or with death rolls. <laughs> no, but it is a minority. I mean, by and large, the vast majority of people that we work with have been fantastically supportive, um, really gone out of their way, you know, to help us lobby MPs and stuff like that. So... No, it's, uh, it brings out the best and the worst in people, but on balance, you know, I can only say thank you to the vast majority that's got behind us. Yeah. yeah. So as it stands today, what can we do and what, well, what can an individual angler do and what can a, mer a commercial captain do for the various parts of the UK? What, what's allowable and what isn't? Yeah, well, the position is that, you know, we're... Um, so, so there's a, this, the global species um, management body is um, it's called ICAT, the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tunas, and they govern everything about bluefin quotas, allocations of quotas, all this sort of stuff. Now, we were a member of ICAT under the EU umbrella. Okay. Just last month, finally joined ICAT as a standalone sovereign nation, which is a fantastic step forward. But we have to adhere to all sorts of rules that I can't set out. One of those rules is if you don't have quota, a share of the, of the big quota, yeah. you can't fish for them. I mean, not only can you not fish for them commercially, 
And you can't even fish from, uh, you know, catch and release uh, recreationally. That's the position, you know, and so any fishing would be unauthorized, would be, would be illegal. And so the exception to that is, you know, if you're on a, uh, a, a specifically approved research project, um, the UK is operating one of those, it's in the third year now, but that's a small scale, you know, very high tech, high cost satellite tagging operation. That's different yeah. from what we're now pushing for right now, which is a much wider scale, you know, floy tagging, dumb tagging operation with hundreds of anglers and, you know, dozens of boats. Uh, if, if you have either of those, then it authorizes fishing, but otherwise, it's all unauthorized, you know, and there's lots of bycatch. Uh, and there's, there is, you know, there's, there's people doing stuff out there, which, you know, we don't encourage, um, but I'm also, I'm not going to condemn people for, you know, going after Bluefin when, you know, they've been here for six, it's the sixth year they've been here in numbers and the government still hasn't created a framework for, you know, anglers to be able to access that fishery in a, you know, a proper controlled and regulated manner so you know it's um i have sympathy for a lot of those frustrations you know, and we're doing our best to get us to a world where we don't have to you know, have those issues where we have a proper legal you know, legal fishery so. mm. and, I, and i do want to circle back on that because if people are going to do it and then inevitably they are it's just it's, it's too much of a temptation for some people so we, I, I would like to talk to you about how you safely do it best practice and stuff like that as i say nobody wants to encourage it far from it but if people are going to do it they, they should know what they're getting themselves into so i do want to circle back to that in a little while um back to the the governing organization that you were talking about so i cats did you say okay yeah. yeah yeah so who gives them the power and why do they get to tell us what our quota is in our own waters in this post-eu world yeah so back in the in the 60s it was recognized that if you species like Atlantic bluefin, that they, I mean, they travel thousands of miles, mm. you know, like across a huge number of fishery jurisdictions, is if every sort of fishery body in its own country did its own thing, you, you know, you'd have no sense of management and control of the numbers of the species. You'd, have, you'd overfish it within. within yeah, the, yeah. So, like a number of other species, they did this as well. But so ICAT was set up to basically create a sort of a, a global, but really we're talking about the North Atlantic for Atlantic Olympian tuna management body where every, everybody collaborates. There's 50, I think 53 or 54 individual uh, member countries and the EU 27. Um, so, the 75 nations have signed up to it. You have to be a UN member. It's, a, it's an international treaty. Um, you know, there's no other fish on the planet that's subject to this, but that's because it's so valuable and it's so vulnerable because you know, the fish can be off of Cape Cod in, uh, you know, in June and they're, you know, in the English Channel in November or, you yeah. know, so you have to have that, that sort of global. It's, it's quite common. There are a number of species, you know, where you have these sort of international management agreements. Uh, and if you sign up to it, you have to play by the rules and, you know, every three years they negotiate quotas. We never had a quota in the UK. I mean, there's lots of myths about how we sold our quota when we joined the EU and so on. But we never had a quota because we never had the fish, right? It was kind of pointless having a quota for bluefin tuna. <laughs> One, we didn't have any in our waters, you know, in the 70s. And two, we also didn't have the specialised fleets to fish for them offshore. We never had a long-lining fleet or a purse-sane fleet that would have pursued them. So, but obviously, things have changed. And there's, yeah. there's, we can talk about this. I know you're interested in this, particularly the distribution of these fish has changed. And the time has come to think very differently about who has quota and how much of it they have and how they get to use it and stuff like that. So, so when, when 
I presume the thing with quotas is they're either done on an, an annual, biannual or four yearly basis. Do we get to renegotiate that or are we trying to agree some kind of special terms? Well, the, the three... And sorry, and sorry as well, j- just to be clear, I don't think there's any of us want to longline them, harpoon them, kill them. Um, you know, we are talking about catch and release here. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have any philosophical issue with commercial bluefin tuna fisheries if they're done within the constraints of a, a sustainable quota. You know yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a catch and release, you know, fundamentalist or anything mm. of that sort. But um, the, uh, I guess the, the point around quotas, every three years the renegotiation takes place and it's based upon a, um, a reassessment of the stock that's carried out by a whole group of international scientists. Um, and at that point, you put in, you know, for what the uh, what you think your share of it should be if it should change from the previous three years. Now we're starting from from scratch on this topic. The triennial meeting was supposed to happen, in fact, next week. Funny enough, um, but it was being pushed back by one year um, because of the COVID stuff. Now they couldn't prepare all the meeting structure. They couldn't do the proper as detailed stock assessment, etc. So it's November of next year, and we'd have to go in and say that we have a, we have all these fish in our waters. You know, we, we think there's a, a case for us to, to obtain quota. So, uh, and there are changes. I mean, Norway, the fish, Norway used to have a really a huge commercial bluefin tuna fishery until the mid 60s. And then the fish just disappeared and there was nothing. And the, the, they, they kept a piece of quota and they eventually gave that up in the 80s. The fish came back, you know, in around 2013, 2014. And Norway said, we'd like a piece of quota, we have history. And they gave them like 30 tons. And then the next year, they gave them 100 tons. And they're up to 300 tonnes of the 36,000 tonnes now or whatever. So, but we're approaching this having never had quota, um, similar to Ireland and Denmark and Sweden. So, you know, we have to make a particular case and that's something the government, if they want to do it, will be doing next year. Okay. So on the basis, let's say that they give us a stupidly small amount. Let's say they give us two tonnes out of the total allocation. Does that then automatically give us a catch and release fishery? Or do the two not sync yes. up? Yeah, the ICAT regulations are sort of a pretty clear in one respect. They say that, you know, a, they call it a contracting party counterpart, something, CPC, a member. If you get quota, that, that member is, um, is obliged to permission a recreational fishery. So they have to give okay. you something. Okay. But before we get too excited about that, in the case of, you know, Italy, um, Spain and France, who hold 75% of the EU quota, they give around one or two percent of that quota to their recreational fishermen and they t- the commercials get the rest in canada they take 10 percent and give it to a, a live release fishery and i'll come back to that issue about why do you need quota for a catch and release fishery that was a book it was mines but it, it is it's valid um and in the us they give around 25 to 28 percent of their quota to recreational fisheries so yes if we got a quota they would be obliged to do something for recreationals but it's got to be the right scale as you say i mean we ran some numbers and basically if we're going to run a live release fishery in the UK, we need something like about 20 tons to cover, okay. which is 0.05% of the global quota. It's not even a rounding error. It's not half a percent. It's 0.05% of the global quota. Whilst the commercials will want, will want you know, quota for their own operations as well. And I'm sure they'll, I know they're lobbying the government for that. But yeah, what we, we don't need a lot. You know, it's, um, we need a tiny, tiny piece of quota out of the global context to make this uh, this fishery work and be valuable, you know, for most of the western waters of the UK. Yeah, I mean, that's that. It's a nothing, as you say, for for the size of 
country that we are and the fact that we're absolutely surrounded by sea, asking for half a percent is, is a bit of a nothing. But considering where we are with the rest of the EU, uh, that half a percent might be challenging. Where, um, so where, yeah. where do you feel we're at in terms of success and... Well, we have the we have the dialogue going. You know, we we've um, we have seats on various working groups that are discussing medium term you know, strategy, post Brexit strategy for Atlantic Blue and in UK waters. We um, we brought Defra to the table for a consultation that has been three months finishes next week to look at the possibility of a, um, uh, a chart tag and release research program for next year, which we tried to get it on this year, but um, they rejected that because of COVID and all sorts of different issues. Um, so we've made progress in terms of the dialogue. We have a good base of political support. Um, you know, I've met with um, fisheries ministers on this topic. Um, the Angling Trust guys regularly bring it up. Um, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that the government, you know, would look to apply for quota. And if they do, then we have a seat at the table, um, and they understand the basics of what we're presenting to them. But it is an emotive subject and it's, there's lots of misinformation out there about it. So you know, we are going to need to have a big push next year to get that over the line. And yeah, and, and it's interesting. This is, you know, we're, do, we're doing this in a, a fishery that's, you know, has recovered substantially. Mm. Uh, a lot of information about it is, you know, is, is out of date. Um, you know, even, you know, Autumn Watch two weeks ago, they say, oh, you know, there's a piece about Atlantic bluefin. Oh, we're critically endangered. Atlantic bluefin have never been categorized as critically endangered you know they were classified as endangered in 2010 and that's that's accepted by pretty much anybody who knows anything about bluefin including the scientists and the management body as being way out of date you know there are but it's still used in the media and that's been a big challenge for us is to get this point across that you know there's it's a, it's a conservation success story you know I mean they were on a, a path to extinction within you know, 20 years ago but action was taken um, and, you know, we don't know the precise extent of the recovery, but then bear in mind, we're talking about a recreational catch and release fishery. I'm not, I'm not leading to up the quota by 30% globally. You know, yeah. we're talking about a rounding error to get a recreational fishery going that I think, you know, could set a new benchmark for how you think about managing bluefin because of the social and economic and scientific benefits that that brings compared to you know, a purely commercial focus on, uh, on bluefin. Yeah, it's it's strange that in all of these things, it's the recreational anglers who always get thought of um, last. And whilst I know we, we've got a population to feed and we've got businesses to run, um, you're talking about millions of anglers in every single country in the world. It's, it's the most popular sport worldwide, but nobody stops to think about getting people into the outside and... You know, not being sat indoors and exploring the countryside and all the things we should do as a healthy population, it seems to get overlooked. Well, absolutely. I mean, the you know the I mean, the, from a financial perspective, I mean, recreational sailing is worth the studies show between one point seven and two billion pounds a year. It dwarfs the value of the commercial fishing. Wow. So that's 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 just, you know sea angling. We're not even talking about the huge value there is from you know from course and salmon fishing and so on. But yet we uh, we never we never punch our weight in these topics. You know we've um, we've badly organised the Angling Trust. You know I've had a lot to do with the Angling Trust in the last two years. They do an incredible job in the marine area with very limited resources. You know um, freshwater. You know and salmoners get the lion's share of Angling Trust funding. 
partly because there's a rod license. I'm not, I'm not arguing for a sea angling rod license, but the fact is they have revenue that they can apply, you know, and the EA money and so on to fresh water. And we don't have an obvious source of revenue to really fight our corner in, um, in sea angling. It's a, it's a very emotive issue. I would know, I, I would, I'm not arguing for a sea angling rod license, don't get me wrong. You know, there'd be a, a whole bunch of conditions, things I want to see in place that benefit angling, sea angling, before I'd even think about that. But, you know, we are in a difficult position. We're under-resourced. You know, we have to fight smart rather than fighting big. I wonder what the uptake would be if you came up with a voluntary license and effectively you're going, you, you take it or you don't, but this is money that we'll take to, to fight your corner, try and improve stocks and make life better for anglers up and down the country. I just, I don't know. I don't know if it would be a 30%, 50% uptake. It'd be useful conversation. I know a lot of... People are, well, if I don't have to pay for it, I won't. But I think there's a lot more conscientious people than that around. Well, I think if you could see, I mean, it's a chicken and the egg because, you know, we, what we're left with right now is a, is, you know, is a marine environment that's been, you know, badly managed for 30 years or more. You know, blame common fisheries policy, you know, whatever. You know, and it's left fisheries that are generally in a dire you know, position mm. as far as recreational anglers are concerned. I'm kind of like, well, if you give us something that's worth paying for, you know, you show first of all, like the, you know, the renegotiations right now about the bass limit for next year, you know, it's going on right now. I was involved in some discussions today about it. And, you know, it's like, we're, again, we're, you know, we're the we're just poor cousins in this discussion. You know, bass is one of those fish where it was striped bass in the US, striped bass in the US. How much of the quota for striped bass goes to recreationals in the US? 75%. That's wow. where the value is. Yeah. So I think you have to first of all, you, you know, DEFRA, you know, the, and successive governments have to prove that you know fisheries are going to be managed for the benefit of all, not just a small group. You know, and then people I think would would be happy to you know to to, to front up and say, well, you go to the US, I don't know if you you fished in places like Florida and California, or no one there thinks twice about the fees they pay for rod licenses because generally speaking, those fisheries managed very well and a lot of them are managed very specifically for recreational sea angling and you get great facilities you've got great docks you know you've got fish cleaning locations you know, fishing gets promoted and that's where we want to get to i think in the uk but it's a and the, and the fisheries bill actually is a big step forward in that i think people are able are not really taking this seriously enough is you know the fisheries bill was passed last week and for the first time ever you know recreational sea angling is recognized as a, a legitimate stakeholder um and that means we also are able to access to funding for projects and so on. And we have a seat at the table. They can't stop us sitting in on the kind of meetings we're, we're sitting in on now on Bluefin on mm. wider issues about fisheries management. So I know we're getting off topic a bit, but it's, um, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important issue, you know, and I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not politically minded about this stuff. And I'd rather go fishing and sit in a DEFRA meeting. <laughs> but, you know, we kind of, I think anglers, if you want change, you kind of have to try and help make the change. Yeah. Um, and, and the lobbying we did, you know, around Bluefin, getting a bunch of guys to, to email MPs and stuff, Defra said it was one of the most effective lobbying campaigns they had because it ended up on the minister's desk and then the minister told Defra what they needed to go and do. So it can work, you know. Yeah. So well, um, I digress. It's... <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, that, that that's the joys of having a long-form conversation like this. It's just... Uh, and, and again, it's it's one of the fun things about running the podcast. I get to talk to really interesting people doing really interesting things, and you can start <laughs> you can start in at one point and end up somewhere else. So yeah, no no um, no problems at all with them um, digressing. Um, 
one of the things you brought up then was the economics of it. So I, I've got to think that if we established uh, a recreational fishery, it's got to have an impact on uh, coastal areas, and it's got to have an impact in places where could, that could do with economic redevelopment. Have you done any work into what that might be like? Any any models or studies? Well, we have to go on because yeah, you know, we can't run surveys on non-existent fisheries. I mean, you can do, but they're just they're just too theoretical. And we yeah. have, a, have a sense of sort of back of an envelope numbers. Okay, if you we've got X amount of charter boats, we think the season could be X. You can charge Y. <laughs> Yeah, fishery could be worth roughly this much, but then you know, really, what you have to do is you have to look at examples overseas of where you've had some comparable um, events, and that there's one that's actually really comparable, which is in um, uh, Hatteras on the Outer Banks in the US. And some of you guys may watch, you know, Wicked Tuna North versus South. Well, the North versus South one is filmed in the Outer Banks on off of Hatteras, and uh, there was no bluefin tuna winter fishery there. Uh, until 1994 and there's these long-term changes in currents we now know uh, that brought the Gulf Stream a bit closer inshore not much like 20 50 miles closer inshore and these fishermen were suddenly finding bluefin you know uh, relatively close inshore on the outer banks in the winter and so uh you know in, in contrast to like six years to sort something out in the, you know in the EU context UK context the US fisheries trend they, they uh, moved quota down to Hatteras for that winter to enable a fishery to operate. And those fish have been back there all in numbers, all bar about three or four years since 1994. But it appeared overnight, a bit like the southwest of the UK. And, um, and three years into the fishery, um, University of Texas led a study to look at the economic value. And it was everything like, you know, that obviously there's charter boat fees, but those guys travel into the area, they stay in hotels and bed and breakfast, they, they use restaurants, they buy fuel, they might buy stuff from local tackle shops. Private boats were using, were paying launching fees, you know, fuel again, all this sort of stuff. And because of the local taxation system in the US, you know, state taxes, there was taxation revenue. So basically they looked at this and it's really, it's Hatteras had three marinas in it. And three years after the fishery sort of turned up, that fishery was calculated to be worth five and a half million dollars to one town. Mm. Um, and in Canada, you know, they looked at a study where they said, well, if we're going to give 10% of our quota to facilitate a recreational catch and release fishery, let's look at what the economics are of that. And in short, I can't get into more detail if you like, but in short, they concluded that on a per ton basis, um, recreationally caught fish were worth between six and 10 times what a commercially caught and killed fish was worth. So, and there's sort of, that's because you have to work on a, a mortality quota, it's quite technical, but apart from the value of the immediate value of charters versus a dead fish you've also got all these tourism dividends as well mm. so there are studies that show this and, and, and you know the irish I, I filled out a survey myself i fished in ireland last year on their research program um we filled out an economic survey asking where would you come from how much money you spend how long you're staying all this sort of thing yeah Ames are running a study as well um, based upon their fishery if we get a chart fishery you know this research program for next year then we really should run a that sort of survey alongside it to see what the value is but like you say these are also you know some of the most economically challenged parts of the of the uk gdp per capita was pretty grim before covid you know and a lot of these tourism businesses are absolutely on their last knockings yeah so um yeah i mean if you can do something which puts an extra 10 to thirty thousand pounds of headline revenue into a skipper's pocket through a program like this 
for many guys, that's absolutely the difference between surviving and not surviving, you know. Um, and then obviously it grows over time. And I mean, it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a world-class fishery. I mean, I think people still think that you know, there's a few odd tuna and we get a lot of Facebook posts here and there. You know, I've been really lucky like you. I, I've got to fish a lot of places around the globe. And I would say when it comes to Atlantic bluefin, particularly the Southwest, um, it's, it's up there in the top three or four fisheries in the, you know, in the world. You've got big numbers. So you've got a good chance of, you know, catching a fish or more than one fish in a, you know, in a day. Um, in the southwest, you're not talking about 50 miles offshore. These fish are being caught within five, six miles of the, of the, of the shore. They're Goldilocks size. You don't want all your fish to be 1,000 pounders because there's not many people want to go and fight a 1,000 pound fish. But 250 to 500 pounds, it's a fish of a lifetime, but it's manageable. Yeah. Sustainable. These fish can survive these sort of fights, you know. And you've got the tourism infrastructure there. You've got a very long season compared to elsewhere. Fish arrive in July. You can still catch them in November. So it, it ticks all of these boxes. I mean, we would have people coming. I, I get emails from guys, you know, literally all over the world who say, Can I come to the UK and catch bluefin? I say, No, you can't. <laughs> you know, give us a year. But, you know, um, let alone, you know, what it means for local, local fishermen, for you know, our own guys. Well, it's it's not just the fishermen; it's the it's the whole local infrastructure, because everybody wants a breakfast in the morning, everybody wants to take sandwiches out on the boat, everybody wants dinner in the evening, nice restaurants, nice bars. The people who are likely to fly in from overseas are going to want a, a certain lifestyle when they arrive, and it's just a boost in the on for all of the economy. It's it's just a a, a win for um for the whole area. So. So the southwest good. We know that. We we know that around Ireland it's good. Where are the the, the furthest sightings? I don't, I don't hear about the east coast having many sightings. Or am I just misinformed? No, no, there's not. I think you, I mean I, I don't hear about many of those either. I get. I, I mean I'm I'm very lucky in the position I'm in because I'm I'm not so, I've got a commercial interest and you know I'm sort of the face of the campaign. Is I get a lot of input from people sending me information about sightings and so on. <clears throat> no, so southwest, absolutely. Celtic deeps off of southwest Wales, that area that runs across the southeast island. Lots of fish there. The average size seems to be bigger. It's different year classes there. Inner Hebrides, outer Hebrides, right up through the Shetland Gap, Northern Ireland. Those fish obviously just around the corner from Donegal. We know all that. We don't get much in the way of information from uh, the north um, east, which is interesting to your point. You know, that was the fishery in the in the 30s. Yeah. Early fifties, you know, um, are they there and they're just a bit more offshore and people are not putting the effort in? We don't really know. I mean, we know they turn up in trawls out on a dogger bank and so on. There are occasional fish washed up. There are. I'm, I'm pretty sure there are fish in the North North Atlantic. There, are, you know, there are tons of them just across in the Skagerrak between Denmark and Sweden. You know, they're running big programs. They're catching dozens of fish there every year. You know, so they could well be there, um, but maybe it's just not in the numbers and not as accessible. You know, you know what Southwest is like. It's like Piccadilly Circus out there, in August. and so you know there's going to be a lot of fishing. And this year, you know, it's different. I mean, this year we, um, you may have seen the videos of, you know, of Brighton. There's fish busting that look do look like tuna. You can't tell 100. Fish washed up in Chichester Harbour. Mm. There was uh, last last week uh, a hundred pound of small fish turned up on the beach in Folkestone. Um, so what happened this year? We think was uh, it kind of brings us to this issue about the you know the why are they here yeah over this over this summer um there's a big 
front called the Yushan front, which is it contains and controls a lot of the currents. And that's been like the limit the, for the advance of bluefin up the channel. And in uh, I think it was August, early August, that that Yushan front collapsed and tail end of two big US storms hit us. So remember, August was a pretty grim month in a lot of ways. Um, and when you look at all the satellite imagery, we, I mean, we, we, this, we run a lot of stuff. We look at a lot of this information. You know, you had this um, proper Atlantic water, different salinity, different temperature creating temperature breaks, which create an awful lot of uh, life, you know, phytoplankton, the stuff that feeds on them and then th feeds on them. So you basically had a, an environment moving up the channel, which you haven't had the last four or five years. And that's why we think these fish were appearing much further east. And interestingly, at the same time, people were saying they weren't quite the concentrations of them off of Cornwall and Devon that we've seen previously. So they were just you know, more spread out. But yeah, they're, they're all over the place. I mean, I get, I've got guys in the Channel Islands who talk to me regularly about huge schools of fish, you know, off of Jersey and, and Guernsey as well. So. so it's interesting that you mentioned currents. Um, it, it feels like there's been some kind of a change that uh, for whatever reason, it's, it's currents that are driving the fish, whether the fish are following the current or the fish are off following prey fish because they need to eat and it's whether the prey fish are moving on and just like um tarpon will follow you know their migration path to go after mullet and then the hammerheads follow the tarpon there's there's a there's a chain of life that um that drives one after the other but uh, you know it's it's easy to look at it and go well global warming the whole world's eating up and our seas are getting warmer so that's why they're here that's an argument that i hear a lot is that valid yeah, I mean, it's, it, I think I think it is potentially a contributory factor, but it's it is more complex now. But I guess the first point I would make is when people when you talk about tuna, the average, you know, uh, man in the street would um, would think, oh, they're a tropical species. You know, mm. and, uh, not all tuna are equal. I mean, like yellowfin are a completely different species physiologically from Atlantic bluefin in terms of the water temperatures and stuff they can tolerate. Atlantic bluefin are pretty unique on the planet in that they, uh, they have this thermoregulation capability there's lots of aspects of them in terms of the size of their gills and the oxygen they can extract from it um, the cellular structure of their heart I mean, they are you know perfectly designed to be able to do what they do which is exploit a very wide range of water temperatures mm. they're spawning in the sort of equatorial you know mediterranean gulf of mexico sort of area you know they can be in waters that are up to 30 32 degrees and then post spawning uh, these fish, they head north by and large into the cooler waters to, to feed on the really sort of oil-rich prey to fatten back up after spawning, you know, the herring, the mackerel, mm. the squid. And then these fish, the big fish, are capable of tolerating temperatures down to six or eight degrees by regulating their own body temperature. So they're not tropical species, first of all. So the idea they're here because our waters are warmer not, doesn't make an awful lot of sense in that respect because these fish can live in the Arctic. Right? So, <laughs> okay. but, uh, but what is the case is that... Um, and we, we don't really know why they're here for sure, but a, a, a theory that's gaining a lot of credence among scientists is that these long-term cycles in the North Atlantic current. So people talk about the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation, um, the NAO, and there's all these things that, all these cycles that exist in the North Atlantic, and they go in cycles, they go in very long cycles, and we've got data, you know, we can access going back a couple of hundred years that shows that you know you have these phases and we talk of them as being warm phases and cool phases but it's more complicated than that okay. um, there is a water temperature bias to it um, and that changes 
you know, what the, as you say, you know, what the phytoplankton generation is and what the fish that feed on them are and that whole chain, you know, that whole food chain thing and at the top of it, you've got the apex predators. Yeah. So, you know, if you look at fishery talked about in Whitby and so on, I mean, that, that coincided along with the Norwegian commercial fishery around 1925 to, in Norway's case, 1963. And that was a warm phase. And you can pull all the charts up on this, you just Google it, AMO stuff, and you'll see these, the warm phase. And these fish were much further in their autumn migrations into the Northeast Atlantic. And then um, in the mid sixties, we entered a cooler phase and we didn't see any bluefin in the final Northeast Atlantic in the autumn. And then around in the 2000s or so, things seemed to change again and we're in a warm phase and these are 20 to 40 year cycles so we're we may be 20 years into it but what may be happening as well is that global warming of the sea temperatures is sort of exacerbating that situation mm. <clears throat> a good friend of mine um dr simon thomas is a marine biologist he's a great angler he's a skipper um he's uh, he's been working on blue shark data for the last you know 10 15 years he's got I mean, 100,000 blue shark capture numbers, runs them against all this kind of long-term, um, that's over 40 years, he's got numbers from going back in the shark angling club and everything. And again, you sort of, you, you, you look at the correlation of, you know, the presence of, of, of blue sharks in years, one year to the next year, and it actually matches up pretty closely with a lot of this environmental stuff that we're talking about. And it's a big study point, a lot of people think about in terms of global warming, so that's getting funding for research, but it's about more than that in the Northeast Atlantic. But um, that's kind of why we, why we think they're here, but also, you know the stock has recovered and we need to touch on this because you know the my bugberries i run into this you know or oh, they're endangered stuff so mm. the history of bluefin is very checkered but to cut a long story short post-world war ii uh japanese started eating red tuna before that it was the peasant's fish um long range deep freeze fishing boats at sea for months on end the rise of sushi culture in japan as it became an economic powerhouse and the export of that sushi culture, all these things drove the demand for Atlantic bluefin through the roof. And ICAP weren't doing a very good job in their early days of managing this. So really from the 1970s, you know, the stock just began to, to, to plummet. Uh, and that was exacerbated by things like the development of tuna farms in the Mediterranean. We now know, for example, that from 1997 to about 2005, um, something like fifty to 60,000 tonnes of Atlantic blooping were being taken when the quota was actually about 30,000 tonnes. Okay. Massive overfishing, stocks collapsed, and they were on their path to extinction. 2007, ICAP finally got their act together and they um, launched a 15-year recovery plan for the, that's for the Eastern Atlantic and Mediterranean stock, which is it's important to know that's about 90% of the global stock is like the stuff on our side of the pond, and the US and Canadian fishery is more like you know, 7 to 10% of the stock. They launched this recovery plan um, and it did bear fruit. But by 2010, we, this wasn't yet proven to, have, to, you know, to have be turning around. So the IUCN, the guys who run the red list that actually put all these endangered, critically endangered labels out on fish. In 2010, they, they ran an assessment. And they said Atlantic bluefin tuna are endangered globally. And they were, you know, and we didn't know if the recovery plan was going to work. But within four to five years, it was pretty clear that something was changing, that the, you know, the numbers had bottomed out and they turned up quite sharply. And as early as 2015, the IUCN issued another assessment on that 90% of the stock this time, and they marked it two notches better than endangered. So, you know, the endangered number is, you know, it's 10 years old. The quotas have been tripled since 2010 in response to the rising stocks. 
There are some concerns about the precise extent of the recovery, but the, the central case modeling they do suggests that between 2010 and 2017, the stock probably doubled. And the one they just published in September of this year, that suggested that the stock had um, increased again, it went from 250 to 550, and the last modeling said 750,000 tons. There's massive caveats around that, but the point is there has been a big recovery, and you know we we don't need to be too concerned. You know if quotas are managed effectively, you know that we're uh, we're pursuing a fish that is you know is in trouble anymore. Got to keep an eye, on it, make sure we don't kill all the mackerel and stuff they feed on. You know, but it's a conservation success story. But there's not a week goes by that I don't have to deal with some nonsense that's on you know the BBC or in even in the Telegraph or on autumn watch you know critically endangered you know it's nonsense so we've got stuff on our website that allows people to say that here's the here's the evidence you know when you see this stuff shoot it down yeah well it seems to be the breeding stock that's around as well all, all the stories that you hear are of as you say the goldilocks size it's a couple of hundred pounds anywhere up to seven eight nine hundred pounds they're big fish and those are the fish that are going to spawn a lot and create a lot of younger fish if it was only the smaller fish that were being caught or were around you'd be concerned about it because they're not the ones that are going to spawn heavily but it feels like we've got a, a big mature heavy amount of fish that are going around and spawning yeah and there's um I mean, we, we've never people said oh well just because they're in the uk doesn't mean there's more of them we've never said that we've said look all the studies show there's more of them and they're mm -hmm. also not going to the uk waters you know they're not it's not the same thing um, but there's a, a whole rethink going on about um, the spawning location. So for, for decades, the assumption has been there's one spawning area in the Gulf of Mexico for the West Atlantic stock, and there's other spawning areas across the Mediterranean. And that has really been debunked now, you know, over the last five to six years. People like Molly uh, Lukovage at the Large Pelagic Research Centre, you know, four years ago, five years ago, said look, here's evidence of another spawning location off the northeast coast of the, of the US. You know, the studies now that there's probably one in the Bay of Biscay, there may be another one, you know, further out. And you know, so when you start saying, well, there's five or six spawning areas rather than two, that changes the modeling quite considerably. And it might be why, you know, the, the numbers appear to be recovering is we're actually only now getting a proper picture of what the state of the stock is. You know, I mean, it's not to say they weren't hugely overfished mm. in a very bad way. Yeah. But it's much more complicated than people thought two or three years ago. And the beauty of it is that a lot of those gaps in the science are actually being filled by research projects that are led with, I guess, participation of recreational sea anglers, yeah. you know, skippers. You know, um, it, it is accepted by all of the you know, major research bodies. And the WWF even funded part of the Danish program where anglers are going out and catching fish, giving them to the scientists, they're putting satellite tags on and sending them off, you know. So we have a huge role to play in the, you know, in the science, and it's been going on to a degree in the UK. But what we're asking for with chart is that you know you could turn that into. I mean, Ireland just tagged six hundred fish. Jesus. Yeah, recreational sea anglers on charter vessels. These are Floyd tags. Saying if Ireland can do you know six hundred, you know we can add to that pool of knowledge as well. And there are you know our fish are a bit different. There's, there's like you know we've got smaller fish on average. We've got a wider range of year classes. You know, water temperatures are a bit different so there's an awful lot of you know of scientific benefit that we can um, you know, we can provide as well i mean just that in itself that's that's an oddity that we ought to try and find some 
answers to. What, why are different year classes visiting different places? Why are the size of the fish different? They're the same species. They've got roughly the same migratory path. Why are some fish going one way and some are going another way? That that just doesn't make any sense. That's got to be investigated. Yeah, and there's some really, there's some, there's some really fascinating stuff that comes out. Well, fascinating for me. I'm a bit of a geek about this. <laughs> you know, like they, they tagged, you know, I mean, Ireland was a case in point, you know, and, and some of the stuff that was done in Cornwall as well. You know, you tag, you can tag fish that are, Ireland is a really good example. It was the early program, I think 2003. They tagged two fish within 15 minutes of each other, peas in a pot, to have been like an inch in length, whatever, and sent them on their way. The tags pop off, you know, whatever, three, six, nine months later. One of them's off of the Bahamas on his way back to the Gulf of Mexico to spawn. And the other one's down at the mouth of the Mediterranean, about to go back into the Med to spawn in the Med. So the mixing, they call it a, uh, they call it a meet and eat location off of Donegal. You know, so there is a there is this cross Atlantic mingling going on as well. So we we caught one of the first um, recreational uh, fish in the Tunnus program last year, and then we handed it over to the scientists or whatever. A good friend of mine, we got him on one of the first ones that was taken in the UK, and um, he got a phone call. Um, 360 days after he caught that fish, a tag was set to release on 360 days. It popped off, it downloaded all its information to the satellite, said, I'm here. And um, that tag popped off five miles from where that fish was caught 360 days earlier. And now we're waiting that in January, February, that information will be available. They're, they're going to share some of that with the angler concerned. He's got a personal interest in this fish. Where's, yeah. Where has his fish been you know, for the last year? And they've given some indication about went off the continental shelf, did this, did that, you know, dive to a thousand meters. So, you know, it's just, well, for me, it's just, it's fascinating. Just to, you can do this. You can catch a fish, release it. You know, they've got, you can have, I mean, mortality in these operations is tiny. It's like one, 2% globally. You know, you do it properly. They're a very robust fish. And then you, uh, you find out that your fish has traveled, you know, 10,000 kilometers, been on this incredible journey and then comes back to within five miles of where you caught it a year later. That's insane. <laughs> that's just that's absolutely yeah, insane. Yeah, it's pretty, yeah. If you got if you got an interest in this stuff, you know, bluefin is really just incredible study. You know. Well, the, one of the things you mentioned then about them having a breeding ground in the Gulf of Mexico, it's not a fish that you would usually associate with that area. For anybody who's fish sort of Bahamas, Florida, Cuba, anywhere in that area, you expect to get bonito or blackfin in the smaller species but it's very very rare that a captain will hook up to a bluefin yeah i mean it's not the place you go for uh you know, if you want to target big bluefin you don't tend to go the gulf of mexico i mean there's a big fishery on the rigs you know way out um, yeah but for years but that, they, that was more that's more yellowfin though isn't it up on the or, or yeah. sort of around louisiana and that area yeah because it's consistently higher water you know water temperatures i mean a lot of bluefin won't be in the gulf of mexico you know, come autumn, obviously they were migrated elsewhere. Mm. Is they said, oh well, the, you know, the because the fish we were finding in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, were with spawning time were sort of six to nine years old was the, the key cohort. Okay, they said they said that basically, uh, you know, Western Atlantic bluefin spawn between six and eight years old. Okay, all the studies from the Mediterranean said, you know, EA Mediterranean bluefin spawn at four to five years old. It's like come on, it's like they're the same species. This is like, this, this sounds very suspicious. But now what we know, and it's, it's still in the process of being you know, confirmed, is that those younger fish on the Western Atlantic were probably spawning up in the Slope Sea off of Cape Cod and the Northeast Atlantic of the US, so in, including a bunch of sex tourists that you know, went from the Eastern Atlantic 
travelled across the ocean to have a bit of a bit of fun, you know, off of the US, like people going to Ibiza, and then would after spawning would back via Ireland or Cornwall back to the Mediterranean. So, you know, it's like there wasn't there wasn't the average age was different. It's just there were the, the Gulf of Mexico for various reasons was holding older fish, and a lot of the younger fish was, were spawning in the north. But you know, there wasn't a three or four year disparity in the maturity of the fish. We now know that's a ridiculous thing to have said. And again, it changes how you think about the um, you know the modelling for their sustainability in their stock levels. Yeah. So how big would they be? So um, pretty fast growing fish, but mm. between the age of three and 10 years, what, what kind of a size fish would that be? Yeah. So fish that, uh, if they're maturing around four or five years old, a three-year-old fish is going to be I mean, in the order of, quote me on this, between 50 and 70 pounds, 80 pounds. They pack on the, they pack on the pounds. Fish that were, the typical age of the fish being caught in Cornwall were seven or eight years. And the average size there was around, is around 300, 350 pounds. Jesus. So, yeah, I mean, fish that we had sort of last year that come back this year are naturally going to be about 40 to 60 pounds heavier year on year. Wow. That's just insane. The amount of food that those fish must be eating to pack on that size is just incredible. Yeah, well, it's another reason why we need to study them because there is a, I mean, there is a genuine issue about, you know, if you've got tens of thousands of these in your water, what impact are they having on your, uh, you know, pelagic stocks? Um, yeah. You know, uh, that's a, a valley because if you're a mackerel, inshore mackerel fisherman, you know, you're being stripped regularly by, by, by bluefin, you know. Well, you're starting to get to a stage where you look at um, the Americans with deer whilst it's great to have deer around. If you leave them unchecked, they'll just, they'll eat themselves into a situation where they're starving. And all of that feeds into the quotas, I guess. If you just leave them to be underfished, they'll they'll tear up everything in the sea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's um the biggest threat. One of the biggest threats they probably face is you know is the destruction of their prey. I mean, we you know super trawlers are obviously a very you know, emotive topic, and mm. one argument is well, if they're only taking the quota and the quota level, you know, is a sensible quota level, then what's the problem? But my issue with that is that you know, they're taking it in a very concentrated fashion. It's like you're suddenly taking a piece of the ocean and you're emptying it of the prey species in that area. And we have no idea what that means in terms of the local ecology. I say local, you could be talking about areas that, you know, like the whole English Channel could be impacted by this. We just don't know. It's saying like it's the whole live wrasse fishery. They're taking all these wrasse out of Cornwall and sending them to Scottish salmon farms, you know, and yet no one's done any analysis to say, well, if you take out half the wrasse on a reef in Cornwall, we have no idea what that means, you know, for the ecology of that reef, mm. reproductive cycle of those fish, you know. So I think super trawls are a really big issue, you know. Um, and more broadly, if we if we do overfish, you know, all these prey species, then obviously bluefin numbers won't be able to be sustained at the at the level they've come back to. So. No, indeed. So we've talked about the science. Let's talk about the fun stuff. <clears throat> so <laughs> sorry about that no 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 <laughs> genuinely i i find it fascinating and it's nice to be able to get to what the truth is because there's so many rumors half truths people chatting down the pub and it's nice to be able to get some real facts on it and and understand the truth behind what the situation is so genuinely thank you for that that, that has been very interesting but it would be remiss of me not to on behalf of the viewers talk about what it's like to hook up to a 300 pound tuna i mean that's not an unre it sounds ridiculous 
if you look at British fishing and you go back 10 years and you talk about a 300 pound fish, you're going, well, there isn't a fish that swims around in that. Yeah. Maybe a species of shark at the top end, but I, I can't think of a 300 pound fish 10 years ago that you could go and target. And now we're talking about a 300 pound fish being reasonably achievable if we get the quotas that we want and, you know, the things that we're trying to aim towards, a normal person could go out, pay money to a charter captain and stand a chance of catching a 300 pound fish. That's mind blowing for most anglers. So what's it like? <laughs> well, it's like, it's like being strapped on the back of a, you know, a formula one car. Um, and your legs turn to jelly, you know, the real screams, the, you know, the adrenaline surge is just, you know, is, is incredible. And, and the fight, I mean, bluefin are um, incredibly powerful fish. I mean, it's 90% red muscle, you know, they're superbly powerful fish. <clears throat> I run at 30, 40, 50 mile an hour. Just, be just before you go on, it's for people <laughs> who haven't, you know, filleted a fish, um, because, you know, in the right place, right time, we, we can harvest fish to eat. What's the importance of the red muscle? Because some people might not have actually seen inside a fish. Yeah, it's its ability to contain, you know, high levels of oxygen reserves. It's much more efficient at converting, you know, um, food and oxygen and chemicals into into energy. Um, so it gives them this ability to have these, you know, these real bursts of, uh, you know, of speed. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's the typical. I mean, so I just to be clear, I mean, I fish for these, you know, in. In the med, I've been involved in the Tunnus program in the, in the UK. I've been lucky to fish for them in the US and the Caribbean, you know, various places. So the first run, you know, when that rod goes, I mean, anything between 150 and 350, 400 yards of line. And, you know, that's why you need, you know, you need kit like this, you know, you need, this is an 80 wide Tiagra, but, you know, we use you know, 50 wides, you can just, if you're experienced, you can get away with it, but really yeah. 80 class gear we're talking about thousand yards of line you know so and what pound line have you got on there um so that's got that particular one has got 200 pound hollow core with a <laughs> 150 pound mono top shot um there's various reasons why we use that combination anyway but yeah so the speed is incredible when you know and there's a lot of panicking and stuff you know but it's like you get guys run to that rod it's like well just leave that alone that's not the important thing the important thing is clear the other rods you know it's not going anywhere it's hooked up it's running um you have someone stand by it just in case it stops and you have to get tight and um, they, they're not totally scripted fish. I mean, they, uh, they, they tend to be reasonably predictable. At first long run, you get harnessed up or you get in a chair, you get, you know, you maybe get half the line back. Fish gets a second wind, you'll have another big long run. And then typically when you sort of get them closer to the boat into the fight, they'll go into the pinwheel. So they'll go from being out there to being straight under the boat. Uh, and that's the bit, you know, that's where the pain locker really comes in because you know there's there's not a lot of it's brute strength basically plus some good technique but what you have to do is you have to try and corkscrew that fish up you know through the water yeah that might be every rotation you might bring that fish up three feet in the water and it could be 100 you know, feet 150 feet below you so you know it can be done but that's the bit that really tends to break you know a lot of anglers but you know i mean there's, there's a lot of stuff on facebook about two hour three hour fights and so on it's not necessary. I mean, people have the right gear <clears throat> and you know, a bit of technique and a bit of knowledge, which is part of the reason we've been sort of pushing for this fishery is, you know, if you put a, a framework around it, you know, and you give people guidance, 
you actually improve the you know the welfare conditions for the fish because there are people fishing you know unauthorized for them and it's surely it's much better if people are given a framework which works which cuts the bite times down people learn about the recovery and the release you know but yeah that power and strength of me is just you know it's just amazing um they're different from marlin they don't tend to go airborne you know um but uh there are times where you, I mean, you know a bunch of my friends i fish with Within 10, 15 minutes, they're like, I'm not sure this was really a good idea after all. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you either you either tick the box and you walk away and say, I've done that. Yeah. Or you become totally addicted to it. It's like yeah. there's any ground in between the two. So and every time I see one of these fish at the side of the boat, I see them jumping, you know, I'm still as excited as I was, you know, 20 years ago when I saw my first my first bluefin, you know. So yeah, it's um Certainly, I think it should be every every angler should kind of experience it and not even necessarily being on the rod, but just to be out there and see these fish in their environment. Mm. Close up at the side of the boat, you know, um, the colors in them are just, you know, incredible. The power is amazing. You know, we have to respect them. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm very passionate about making sure we, you know, we treat them right and we, you know, we, the recovery process is really important. You know, these fish deoxygenate and there's a whole bunch of chemical processes that go on. Um, if you, you, know, you, you can catch a hundred pound bluefin, get to the boat in 15 minutes and that fish could be dead within, you know, four hours of release. You can catch a 600 pound fish, take you an hour and a half and that fish can put a satellite tag in it and it goes away and it lives happily for another year, at least that you know of. Mm. And it's all about recognizing the state of the fish when it gets to the boat and really, you know, understanding the recovery protocols to reoxygenate it, the things to look for when it comes back upright and is ready to go. And if you do that properly, you know, like I say, all the studies show there's a sub 5% mortality rate for Atlantic bluefin. They're a very robust fish if you just do some really basic, basic things. You know, and we said to people, look, we're not encouraging anybody to go fishing for them. But like we said, some of the shark guys I talked to, the shark skippers, if you're going to be in areas where you can't get a, you can't get a blue shark on the line, you know, bluefin are taking the bait. It's, seriously, it's been happening in the last two years. Is think about upgrading your gear. You know, like you don't yeah. start two three hours risking compromising the welfare of fish. Upgrade your gear. So we offered a lot of advice to people about the stuff to use. You know, and you are compromising the sport from the blue shark fishing. But you know, look, you got to make a decision about it. Um, yeah. You see, we've got, you know, we've got a few toys you brought along. You know. It's not a cheap game, unfortunately. I mean, the you know, the kit is expensive. You can't really get away from away from that. But. Well, we we talked about it off air before we started, and what we thought was an important message. Again, we're not advocating it. We don't want people to do it. It's not legal. Some people are going to go out and do it. For the love of God, don't think that you can, you know, you, you've caught a few tuna elsewhere, and you think you can turn up with a 30-pound class rod, a vertical jig, and you've got some chance of getting them in because it's not fair on the fish and you're going to end up with broken tackle or a dead fish at the side of the boat. Um, so if you, if you go, it's, it is expensive. You're absolutely right. But if you're going to do it, at least do it right, get the right tackle and learn how to revive the fish. Yeah. So in the consultation, we're working on this consultation right now for a possible research program next year. And one of the things that's, you know, incorporated in that is sort of minimum tackle requirements like they have in Ireland and Denmark and Sweden in their programs. You know, and so we've sort of settled on some guidelines as to the stuff we think people should use. And there's a minimum and then there's a recommended, you know, yeah. um, and the minimum is really if you're you know, highly experienced and you're fishing in certain conditions, you know, that's one thing. If you're not, then go for the next set of gear. But we're saying to people really, you know, 80 wide, 
type reels, um, 80 pound class, you know, stand up rods. Um, you know, 50s don't, 50 pound rods don't cut the mustard. 50 wide reels, you know, a lot of fish been caught on 50 wide reels and what they call 50, 80 rods are like sit between the two. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, we, we published a piece in Saltwater Boat Angling Magazine, which was like, if you do hook up, you know, um, accidentally, um, or you put yourself in a position where you're thinking, wish I had done this, then here were some tips about what you need to do. You know, it's like keep applying pressure, use the boat, you know, get the fish to the boat in a certain way is how you want to think about using the boat when you lead the fish, that kind of stuff. Mm. To really say, you know, look, we're not, we're not encouraging you, but the reality is it's happening one way or another, bycatch. And we just want to get the message out there that don't, you know, don't follow the fish around with no drag on it. You'll, you'll be there for five hours if you do that, you know. Yeah. It's short pumps, you know, it's how it's, this is the pinwheel, it's how you work with the pinwheel, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. so do you back down to the fish when you're um, uh, working on the scientific programs or do you just stand and fight? Generally don't back down. I, um, I mean, these fish, when they're in the pinwheel and they're difficult to bring up, if you try and sort of go away from the fish to get an angle to plane it up, Mm. The fish just come straight back under the boat anyway. If the fish is, I, I was thinking more when they've done that initial run. Let's say they're sort of four, five hundred yards away. Anyone who's done any marlin fishing, you've seen, you know, the back of the boat with spray and spume coming over, and you know, water's pouring over the back of the boat. I presume there's none of that. But the problem with that is that, um, you know, I've, I've had this with friends of mine. Is that the moment you start backing down, or you know, if the fish is running forwards, you're following it and fighting it from the side. Is yeah. You start doing that the temptation of the angler is to go oh thank christ for that i'll have a bit of a break <laughs> and, 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 the, and the rod unloads yeah and there's no pressure on the fish and suddenly the fish is recovering at a pace that is faster than your recovery <laughs> and also if you've got a slack line in the water you're increasing massively the risk of things like towel wrapping the fish yeah once you towel wrap a fish it's probably that's it like it doesn't unwrap itself it's gonna it's gonna die and you can mitigate that by keeping the rod loaded so we say you know, even if you've got light gear you know, and you've been caught out, it's like keep the rod loaded to the maximum that you can. Don't don't let up. Keep that pressure on. Try and fight the fish from 90 degrees. Try and turn the fish. But the backing down thing, it's a double-edged sword, to be to be perfectly honest. Yeah. It, it's not a style that has ever appealed to me anyway. I, I know a lot of friends who, who've gone out and done marlin fishing. And you're not... Again, I'm not criticising anybody who does it because fishing's a broad church and... God go with anybody who picks a rod up. It's, everybody should do the thing that makes them happy. But for me, when you start to back a boat up, it's it's the skipper who's doing the work, not you. If I'm going to fight a fish, it's me and my old fat body that's going to break the fish, not the, the guy who sat in the skipper's chair who's backing up at 10 knots. But as I say, each to their own, if that's what floats your boat. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, the thing about, you know, use a chair versus a rod holder versus stand-up. I mean, you know, there are guys who are physically just not going to be capable of fighting big mm -hmm. stand-up, you know, and does that mean we should exclude them? Or do you find a boat that's got a fighting chair or you have really good rod holders, swivel rod holders, and they fight from the holder? You know, there's some, each two is uh, each to his own, as long as, you know, the fish is sort of welfare and the avoidance of, you know, two, three-hour fights is the primary issue. You know, I mean... You know, you get guys on a rod who clearly can't do the job. You kind of have to say sorry. We've been, in, you know, in the in the Tanas UK program, we had a thirty minute limit, which doesn't sound like much, but we were fishing spreader bars, and spreader bars really cut the fight time down because of the drag they create. And um, after thirty minutes, if the if the, if the recreational sea angler on board 
you know, the catching vessel hadn't got fish to the boat, like, we'd take it off him and we'd finish it off ourselves, you know. And it was quite handy to have that because there were a couple of times we used to stand over their shoulder and it's like, if you don't show me, you know, in the next two minutes that you can do this, we're taking it off you. And it's amazing how suddenly people would dig deep and they get those reserves and four minutes later, the fish is at the side of the boat, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I think as well, some people have never pulled that hard on a fish. If, if you've never really put it to a fish and dragged hard, it's an unfamiliar feeling to know what tackle can do. And if you're fishing with an 80 pound class rod and 200 pound line, unless you're Brian Shaw, you're really going to struggle to snap that. You can give it pretty much anything that um, a man can give. Technique is, uh, is really, and gear setup and technique are really important. They're more important than brute strength. There's a, there's a lady called Marsha Beerman, B-I-E-R-M-A-N. You, you know, your, your, your viewers should uh, Google. Marsha's like four foot two, sorry, five foot two. And just a wisdom, it would be difficult, four foot two. Uh, Lord of the Rings sort of thing. Um, <laughs> she, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's video of her fighting 600 pound marlin stand up and stuff like that. You know, it can be done. You know, things like the, you know, the setup of your harness. You know, Mallorca, we did a lot of experimentation on, on harnesses. We have guys who buy bucket harnesses. I've seen it in the UK, and then turn them into a kidney harness, and that's like the worst thing you can do. You know, the whole thing is about using the biggest muscles in your body, which are your quads. You know, the straps being an inch longer or an inch shorter, the pad being an inch higher or an inch lower transfers completely the muscles you're using to fight that fish. Mm. Suddenly, you've got a pain in your lower back. You get a proper bucket harness set up for stand up. You know, you don't tend to have problems with your back. You don't use your arms. All this nonsense. You don't do that. You're using your quads. The only thing that should hurt the next day is, is your calves, your quads, your ankles, your instep, you know, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, the little details like that, really, really important to, to get right. You know, it makes a, makes a you know, what will be a one-hour fight into a 30-minute fight. Yeah, indeed. And that's the important bit. It's it's making sure, I presume it's the buildup of lactate acid that's the problem for the fish. Yeah, I mean, lactate is one issue. There's things like potassium levels. The cell structure starts to break down. You're going to get me on that science stuff again if you're not careful. But... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, basically, there's a process that begins. Um, they have two stages. They have a sprint stage. Yeah. When it's um, they're burning a lot of oxygen reserves. And then they go into a um, into a sort of a jog phase. Um, and like so in terms of burn, you read about tuna being burnt and stuff. Mm. What happens is that first stage process starts and it doesn't get reversed um then the fish dies and the burn occurs after the fish is dead but it's a process that's begun before so interestingly long line caught fish yellowfin for example fish premium over other types of catching because on a long line they get hooked they go crazy for a bit and they sit there for a couple of hours before they come and get picked up yeah so, you know it stops all those processes in their body you know but so yeah it's lactate potassium calcium levels but a lot of that stuff goes really bad in the first like 20 minutes and then starts to level off. Uh, and that's why, say, if you if you really reoxygenate them properly at the side of the boat, the right speed, everything, you you stop those processes, you reverse those processes. And that's where you get these very good survival rates. It's easy to get it wrong, but it's also very easy to get it right. You know? mm. So I presume once you've got them alongside, um, it, it's a gaff through lower jaw, pull them at the side of the boat or... Sorry, I can see you grimacing at that. <laughs> I do see, I've seen this on Facebook, you know, and I kind of called a few guys up and said, why exactly did you do it? I said, well, we had to swim it. And it's like, okay, you've got, you've got like a 300 pound leader. Just fought this fish for whatever, 40 minutes. 
at full speed. You think you can't tow it on the leader, you know, for 15, 20 minutes to reoxygenate it. You've got to stick a gap in it. You know, I mean, there comes a point where you say, well, I've got to get the hook out and you've got to take the tension off for that reason. But mm. even then, you start to say, well, you know, given all the studies, especially hooked in the scissors, you know, are you going to do more damage sticking a gap in the chin than you are leaving the hook in the fish? And you've got to think about all these things. Every case needs to look at its own merits. And there are these giant sized boga grips you can get now designed for big pelagics, you know, which don't pierce a hole in them. If you're, um, if you're going to be, you know, tagging a fish in the water, then it's a bit different because you need more control, you know, over the fish at both ends. Mm. So Adrian Malloy in Ireland has like a big shepherd's crook that goes on under the tail, you know, and a lip gap, especially designed lip gap, not, you know, not something you bought on the internet that's designed to pull mahi you know, out of the water on your fishing holiday, but a proper short, specially designed, specially curved lip gap if you have to do it. But I just like, unless you're tagging these fish, there's no, you know, and don't bring them on board. I mean, there's no need, you know, you hook one accidentally and you want a picture, fine, take a picture in the, you know, in the water. But the moment you bring them on board, you are impacting the, um, you know, the, you're increasing the risks. In the so basically get them alongside tow them with the leader and the hook that's already in and then just cut close to the hook when it's time yeah, to release them. Yeah, things like bolt cutters you can use, you know, if you're using barbless circles or whatever, you know, they're a bit easier to get out. Um, you know, there are certain hook designs that we've been experimenting with in Mallorca and elsewhere for the last four or five years, particular manufacturer engage where, you know, once you've swum the fish and you're ready to go, you know, if you've got a strong enough leader, you pop it. And, um, you know, more often than not, the hook will break on the on the bend. That's right, two, okay. Rather than a three X hook, but it's you know you have to know your hooks, you know, um, and that does mean you can't you know you can't go to forty fifty pound of drag on the fish in the fight and stick it in a holder because you're going to straighten the hook. So there's all this stuff about balance, you know, stuff you have to use. So. Perfect. So um, getting back to the. Um the program of work that you guys are doing if people want to help if people want to get involved if they want to support what should they do is, is now the time or are you in a quiet period you talked a little bit earlier on about um at a certain point it's going to lead a lot of support by everybody to push it into the fore is this stuff that people should be doing now or wait until a point in the future well, i think ongoing we ask people to sort of counter the you know the bs that's out there so when you see you know something in the media that, that is talking rubbish about mm. the state of the stock or the damage that anglers do is get the information you need we buy our website you know we've got a lot of documents there we've got a big piece about you know debunking the endangered myth you know, about the history of the species and so on it's just be informed and so spread the word it's like you know this opportunity is there misinformation needs to be countered and then we're, you know, we're in the closing stages of a consultation process right now. Um, early in the new year, we'll get some sort of sense if the government wants to take that forward for this research program next year. Next year, we start pushing again to, you know, to obtain quota for a proper fishery beyond that. Because at some stage, you know, we're going to come to people and say, look, you know, you need, to, particularly if you're in a coastal, you know, area, is basically we need you guys to just kind of remind your MPs that, you know, this is, you know, economically valuable, sustainable scientifically valuable and kind of everybody else seems to be doing it <laughs> you know? i mean if you places have got quota are obviously doing it but countries that haven't got quota like ireland and denmark and sweden you know are operating chart programs so you know we there isn't really any valid excuse as to why the uk shouldn't join them and if we get it right you know 
we can really show like this is the the world class benchmark, you know, of how you do it. You know, we think about I think about recreational sea angling. It's that's also you know, some of my the guys in the angling trust about is you know what's what's the what are the merits of it? And I say look, it's really it's like it's a it's a three legged stool, and you've got you know the economic benefits. You know, we know it's like 1.82 billion a year of economic value from recreational sea angling that shouldn't be sniffed at or ignored. You know, bluefin tuna can add to that you know considerably. Secondly, you know, you've got the potential for the scientific work that only anglers can do, like this stuff that Simon's done, Simon Thomas has done on blue sharks. Mm. Nowhere in the world has got the data he's got, and it's all come from recreational sea anglers. And the third leg is that is the whole, you know, mental well-being, you know, the the the, the health issues, the social benefits from it. And Christ, you know, this year has shown us anything. It's like the, those those merits of fishing, whether you're on a bank, you know, um, in the early morning mist, or whether you're 20 miles offshore on a wreck. Those benefits are huge, and we yeah. shouldn't you know, forget that when we campaign for all forms of angling. Really, no, I mean, absolutely, absolutely. I, I've really enjoyed our chat. I, I'm fascinated by the subject, and I'd, I'd like to invite you back on at some point next year when when you've moved it forwards I'd, I'd really love for you to come back on <laughs> yeah fingers crossed um and, and come back and update everybody because if we can establish it i just think it's a magnificent thing but uh, thank you for your time tonight one of the privileges about doing this as i said earlier is i get to talk to some really interesting people and that's just been an absolutely fascinating hour and a quarter that's gone like that so um before we go is there is there anything else that you'd like to add from a campaign point of view um, no, so I think it's you know, keep, keep an eye on the Facebook pages, you know, Blue Contuna UK, support, you know, the Angling Trust have been a big supporter of, uh, of this, you know, trying to make this happen, get on board with the AT, should be a member, they do a lot of good work that doesn't go recognised by a lot of anglers, um, and then we will come to you and we'll be asking you to you know, get involved in lobby MPs and so on, write to your newspapers, that sort of thing. So yeah, just keep in touch, you know, there'll come a, there'll be a rallying cry at various points in the next six to 12 months. Um, but no, I really enjoyed it. And it was great. So, you know, thanks for the chance to chat. And I'm sorry I got so geeky about all the science stuff. <laughs> when you, get on, you get me in front of a camera and ask me some questions. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting stuff I want to talk about. So. No, I mean, uh, talking about the um, ecology of fishing is as interesting as, as actually talking about the nuts and bolts of it. And as I say, the, the whole point of having this this platform was to talk to people who aren't just interested in well if i tie this rig and then i add this onto the end of it and it balances the rig and all that's very interesting but there's a million and one other podcasts that are out there doing it and talking about the technicalities the the great thing about this platform is is that we can talk about things that maybe other people aren't and you know that's a, a prime example of it so if we as a platform and our viewers can do anything to help further the cause well it's a privilege to be able to do it so genuinely thank you for coming on really appreciate your time and yeah keep in touch no no thank you it's been great and good luck with the podcast yeah thanks appreciate it thank cheers you. steve bye uh let me